How are we doing this morning? You guys doing all right? Anybody enjoy having the whosoever's here last weekend? It was a pretty awesome experience. Before we get going this morning, for those of you that have been around Anthem for a while, uh, you know some of the ways we do business, uh, one of which is a family meeting that we usually try to do two to three times a year. And our family meetings are an opportunity for us to just get together, talk about family business, um, be very transparent about our finances and where things are at and what decisions are being made. Uh, And then also a time for us to take communion and fellowship with one another and just see who the larger family of Anthem is. And so uh, because of COVID, that's presented a problem for us to have a family meeting in the last eight months. We did one in February and we haven't been able to do one since, but we have kind of some big news. Um, For most of you that have been around, you probably know that we've been looking at a building that is occupied by First Baptist Church down on Fifth and Wallace for a very long time. Sort of been courting First Baptist Church for like two, maybe three years with the hopes that like something was gonna come out of that and it kind of looked like it did and a few weeks ago our elders had a meeting with the First Baptist leadership team and come to find out the First Baptist is kind of in a position where they're trying to like reboot their ministry and they brought in a new pastor and they're trying to make some changes and it became very apparent to us at that point that maybe we need to kind of pull out of that as an option and see what else the Lord might have in store for us. And I kid you not, the week after all of this happened, um, it's, it's almost like a place just fell in our lap and in, the matter, in a matter of, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks, um, we've put an offer in on a building and have been, we're now in the midst of 30 days of doing our due diligence to figure out if this building could work for us. And um, God has provided uh, the funds for us to pay cash for this property, so we won't be going into debt to do it, but we would be coming before the church and looking to seek some assistance to do any renovations on it. But the place we kind of find ourselves at right now as a church, uh, there it is. It's on 11th and Pennsylvania, just like two blocks down the road, yeah. Um, So there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, We've been a mobile church downtown since day one. We've never really had a home. And I kind of liken it to, uh, it's awesome, but at some point when you're couch surfing forever, you realize like it might be good for me to plant down somewhere uh, and have my own place. And it's proven to be really difficult for us um, with regards to having a place to do anything extra. So we rent other places to do extra meetings. Right now, um, God has been uh, so gracious through the Putrin family to allow us to use their home in Dalton uh, for youth group on Wednesday nights, but they've got about, yeah, give, give them a hand. Um, but they're putting like 70 people in their home on Wednesday nights, uh, which presents a problem, especially once the snow starts flying and they cannot be outside anymore. And so we've just seen a, a couple things that have led us to a place of realizing we probably need to make a move. And so um, all that to say, next Sunday, Uh, from 4 to 5 p.m., we're going to host a family meeting for one hour. And I I will preface it by saying, if you want to be there, be there. But we hope that the people who show up will be people that call Anthem home, that feel bought in, like this is family to them, and you really care about the business transactions and 
what the Lord's doing and how this is going to pan out and to hear us be very transparent about our finances and how we're paying for this and what it's going to take moving forward. And so if you call Anthem Coeur your home, we'd love to have you present at that meeting. But it will be from 4 to 5 p.m. next Sunday at that location. So 773 North 11th Street on the corner of Pennsylvania and 11th. And it'll be an opportunity for you to kind of walk through it and get to see it for yourself. And then we'll spend some time gathering in there, praying, and just kind of talking about the logistics of what this could look like and how long this can take and the millions on millions of dollars we have to raise. I'm just kidding. Um, But is it not awesome that the Lord has provided the cash for us to do this without any debt? I mean, that's been our prayer since day one, um, that we wouldn't have debt and we haven't had to. So um, praise the Lord for that. So anyhow, next Sunday, 4 to 5 p.m., we would love to have you guys there. If you guys would turn with me in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to dig into the Word this morning. We're going to be in eight verses in Matthew chapter 9, and I'm actually going to spend a lot of time camping out in one particular verse, and I'm going to handle this section maybe a little differently than normal, but um, let me read this passage, and then let me pray for us, and then let's dive in. It says this, Matthew chapter 9, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they, were glor- and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to pierce our hearts this morning. I pray for all those that are present here, Lord. I don't believe it's coincidence that you allowed them to be here this morning, and so I pray that our hearts will be softened and opened up to you to allow you to speak with us however you need to, Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness, God. We thank you that we are a people who are changed and transformed as a result of the amazing work that Jesus has done. And so this morning, Lord, may we honor and worship you for what you have done for us, uh, to us, through us. And so, Jesus, we give you this time. We pray you'd anoint it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So one of the major themes that we've seen through the book of Matthew up to this point is this whole idea of the kingdom of heaven coming near. And we've talked about this, the kingdom of heaven sort of invading earth. And ever since chapter 8, when Jesus came down from the mountain, we've, seen, we've been seeing Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. And so we've been getting sort of this taste of what the kingdom of heaven looks like and what it feels like, how it actually manifests itself on this earth. And so as the kingdom of heaven intersects with our world, we begin to see that people are set free. This is one of the most amazing things about seeing the power and the work of Jesus is that people are set free. They're delivered. And so Jesus, we know, came to set the captives free. So Jesus speaks, and all of a sudden sickness and disease vanishes. Jesus speaks, and the elements, nature, obeys him. 
Jesus speaks and the spiritual realm responds. It leaves, as we talked about two weeks ago, where these demons were cast out of these men. And so as we come to this text today, Matthew wants to show us one step further what Jesus is capable of, what it means that he has authority, that he is divine. And so as we come to this section today, it's sort of like he's been building one story after another up until this point to prove a major point. Because he wants us to see that these miraculous acts, these liberating things that Jesus is doing for humanity are signposts. These things are, they're arrows. They're they're, they're things that are meant to point us to this even greater reality of who Jesus is. We have to always remember, Anthem, that, that Jesus didn't become a man. He didn't live, die, rise again in our place just so that we could have healthy bodies and peaceful lives until the day we actually die. That was not the purpose of Christ coming to this earth. Jesus came to get rid of and to destroy death itself, sin once and for all. Jesus came to liberate us. He came because our liberation eternally would actually require Jesus sort of orchestrating this whole recreation of sorts of us. And so today, our text is all about the kingdom of heaven, and we see some of the ways that this kingdom of heaven sort of presses in on us and our world that we live in. How does does it invade or intersect with the world that we live in? And so to see how this kingdom of heaven does that, I want to walk through this text a little bit differently than maybe normally we do, where we just go verse by verse by verse by verse. I'm going to camp out in one specific aspect of this text. Specifically, I want us to look at the words of Jesus to this paralytic man. And so we're going to walk through the whole passage eventually, but we're going to spend the majority of our time sort of camped out on this one little sentence, this this one little piece that Jesus says to him. And I want us to see three things that the kingdom of heaven does as it presses in on us. In, in this world, what does it look like for the kingdom of heaven to take residence? And then after that, we'll walk through the rest of the text. But we'll do it pretty quickly. So um, let me set this up a little bit, and then we'll get into it. Uh, in, in verse 1, we read this. He says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. That's how Matthew puts it. So the the first thing that Matthew wants us to see is that, again, Jesus crosses over. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, You'll remember us talking about how the importance of this phrase, crossing over, and what that meant to Matthew. Like, he's trying to communicate to us more than just simply that Jesus is on the other side of this body of water, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that he's trying to show us Jesus' movement between areas where they're primarily Jewish and areas where they're primarily Gentile, like non-Jew. Two weeks ago, we ended chapter eight, and Jesus was in the country of what? Anybody remember what the name of the country was that Jesus was in? The Gadarenes. And so Jesus is in these Gadarenes, and this is where he engages these two men, and he casts demons out of them. And now we hear that Jesus crosses back over, and he goes back into his own city, which is known as Capernaum. This was sort of Jesus's uh, like mission post. This is where he set up, where his ministry was sort of launched out of. And then he says this in verse two, and behold, so there's that command to look again. Behold, look, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So 
We're getting used to the fact that Matthew sort of tends to leave out a ton of details in his writing. You can go look in other sections of the Gospels and see a more detailed account of this specific instance. But what you might not know um, from this description or from this, this opening sentence that Matthew gives us here is that this story's a pretty famous story. If you grew up in and around the church, if you ever messed with flannelgrams, anybody ever messed with a flannelgram? You probably played around with the story, trying to figure out how this worked out, what exactly was going on. And so the story is of this group of people, and they, they bring this paralytic on a mat, sort of like a bed that he's stationed on every single day. And they carry this man to Jesus. Because why? They want this man to be healed. They know Jesus can do it, and so they're going to bring him to Jesus to be healed. And so they get to this house where Jesus is at, and he's teaching, but the house is so stinking full that they can't even get into it to engage Jesus. They can't even get into the house. So what do they do? They improvise. They go up the stairs to the roof. They find uh, a, a way to lower this paralytic man down to Jesus through the roof of this building. And so we have this paralytic man lying on a mat in front of Jesus being lowered down through the roof. Now, you'll hear me say this a lot. I'm a very visual person. When I read the Bible, I have to put myself in this place. I've stood in Capernaum. I've seen what these structures look like that they would have lowered this man down through. And I placed myself in the scene. And this morning, I'm asking you to use your imagination a little bit to imagine that you are this paralytic man lying on a mat, being lowered down through the roof of this, the, this house down to Jesus. And so Matthew sort of leaves this section out, though. We can find out in other Gospels, he was lowered through a roof. Matthew leaves this section out. But he does record Jesus' reaction to this whole thing that's taking place. And so in verse 2, picking back up, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, it's one of the ways we know this, this story is connected to the others, is how in the world did they see, did he see their faith? Well, he saw their faith because they were literally doing anything they could to get this man down through the roof, peeling back the straw or whatever they had to, the tiles, to put this man down through the roof to get him to Jesus. And this is a really important point for us to realize what's, ha what's actually happening here. The, the, the act of lowering this man down to Jesus actually evidences the same faith that we saw in the leper, that we saw with regards to the centurion. It's sort of this unshakable belief that with a word, Jesus can heal and that people actually believe that he can and that he will. And so mo most people think that this paralytic man was probably a quadriplegic, and yet they believe that with one word, Jesus could restore this man's body, that the paralysis in his body will obey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we need to understand that Matthew points out Jesus's recognition of their faith for a reason. He sees their faith. Why in the world would this be pointed out in the book of Matthew? Because faith in Jesus is the entry point into the kingdom for us. It's it. It is the thing. We have faith and we believe. And that becomes the entry point for it. It all hinges on faith. And what's interesting about this passage in comparison with some of the others that speak of faith in Jesus at, at this time is that faith in Jesus isn't tied to the physical healing itself. 
This time, faith in Jesus is actually tied to what Jesus says to this paralyzed man lying in front of him. And the miracle actually comes later. He's not even talking about their faith yet in regards to this miracle that's going to happen. That hasn't even happened up to this point. But Jesus' words to the paralytic give us this sort of window into what the kingdom of heaven does, the power that it has. But again, the starting point for you and I is always faith. It's taking a blind leap, like to trust Jesus. And so I recognize that maybe not everybody here in this room this morning would profess faith in Jesus. Like not all of you, what I presume, are believers. I know that many of you would say, absolutely, Jesus is my Lord. Like he is king. Jesus is my God. And then there's many of us that would say that, but there's others here who may disregard that, like they don't want to believe that at all, and that's okay. But what I want you to see in this text this morning, in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, is that it's actually for every single one of us. Regardless of your perspective this morning, how you come in here, what your background is, this is for you. But this passage is primarily dealing with how the, ink, the, the kingdom impacts the lives of believers. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that, that what's been shown to you today is what Jesus lived, died, and rose again to offer you. Liberation, freedom, all based on your faith to jump all in. And this is what's being held out to you. Like, is God's kingdom is intersecting with our world, so what is it? Like, what is it that the kingdom of God does as we enter by faith in Jesus? Well, to, to see that, we actually need to understand something about this paralytic man himself. We have to understand one particular aspect of Jewish culture and how they would have looked upon this man. In ancient Israel, there was a really prominent belief that specific instances of sin and sickness were often directly tied to specific instances of sin. So if you are a paralytic, you're that way because of something you did or because of something that your family did. It was a result of sin that God, you did something to earn that state. And so what, uh, we see that, for example, in places like John chapter 9, where Jesus and his disciples come across this man who's been blind from birth. And it says this, it says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the man was blind for a reason. It was one, because of something he did, two, or it was two because of something his family did. And so what I want you to notice is that there's this assumption that the disciples make because of their belief system, that they think that the sickness has to be tied to a specific instance of sin. And this was a normal way uh, of viewing permanent physical ailments in those days. They would have thought that they did something to deserve what they got. And so I want to address this a little bit. And this isn't the point of this passage, but this text sort of raises this question, at least for me when I read it. Uh, so is this a proper way for us to view sickness and sin today? Is this the proper way for us to view it? Are there any of us in this room today that would say today that if you have a permanent physical ailment, it's actually directly tied to some kind of sin in your life or somebody's sin in your life that you're connected to? 
Because there are people who say that. I've heard people say this, but Jesus responds to his disciples in John 9, and he brings kind of a correction to that way of thinking. In John 9, 3, he said, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus says, look, no, it's not sin that caused this man to be born blind. This is all about the glory of God. And so there's this correction that he gives, but we have to be careful on the other hand, on the other end of things, to not let the pendulum swing too far over the other way. Because at the very least, what Jesus is saying is that not every physical infirmity is a direct result of sin in your life. And we have the same thing affirmed for us in the Old Testament. Like if you look at the book of Job, some of you might know the story, but Job is terribly afflicted. Like actually by God himself, he's afflicted. And his friends, they come to them and and, and they're convinced like, man, Job, you must have done some secret sin. There must be something in your life in order for this to be happening to you. You did something to deserve what you got, Job. But God shows up later in the book of Job and he rebukes his friends for thinking like that. And so we have to be careful that because even though every sickness, biblically speaking, cannot be direct, directly linked with sin, um, but the biblical picture, like a more holistic view of sin and even sickness, is that all sickness actually does flow from sin. The sickness and disease and things we see in this world today is a result of sin. The only reason this stuff exists in the first place is because of our rebellion against our creator. Sickness did not exist prior to sin coming into the world. At the creation, at first in the garden, sickness and disease did not exist. And so in one sense, all sin or all sickness is a result of sin, And it's why we're told in the book of James, confess our sins as we go before the elders and pray and ask for healing that we might be healed. And so there's this bit of a middle ground that um, that we kind of fall into. Yes, sickness is a result of sin in this world, but not all forms of sickness are a result of your sinful behavior. And hopefully that kind of helps you um, as we go through this text. But back to this paralytic eye. What I want us to see is that the prevailing mindset in this ancient Jewish culture was that permanent physical ailment like what this man had were a sign of God's displeasure with him. It was attributed to specific sins of this person who's sick. And so that's the world that this, like it breaks my heart if you put yourself in this man's shoes and what he would have been feeling. And I think it helps us understand some of the weight that he would have been carrying upon him. And I want us to try to imagine this for a second, like try to put yourself in the sort of dusty first century world for a moment and try to put yourself on the mat of this paralytic. First of all, imagine being paralyzed. I mean, to most of us, that in and of itself is totally incomprehensible. We can't even imagine what that would be like. But I want you to try. And I want you to imagine being unable to move on your own. Imagine the pain and the struggle of life. Imagine being unable to provide for yourself. Imagine being unable to provide for those that you love. Imagine the frustration that would probably build up that would eventually turn to anger within you. Imagine the confusion that living in that state for your whole life would bring you. But here's what's really gnarly. 
take all of that fear, all of his frustration, all of his anger, and compound it on top of that, this cultural belief that it's your fault, that you did it. And I want you to imagine how this man felt. It's something you did or your family did on top of the fact that you're already dealing with this ailment and you're already an outcast. Imagine what would happen to you being left in a place like that for a lifetime. Imagine having those waves of despair and waves of shame that continue to crash upon you day after day while they bring you out on your mat to lay you down in the city courts so that you can beg and get alms every single day. But people have been seeing you your whole life the shame and the guilt, and while they're walking by, they're not just thinking, there lies a paralytic, they're thinking, what did he do to get himself on that mat? The shame and the guilt that this man felt. This is what you have going on in this guy. A a, a man who likely even believed that he had forfeited his right to a body that worked. A man who believed that He was a greater sinner than almost everybody else around him because of his physical state. A a man who believed that God's sort of disposition toward him was anger. It was frustration. It was disappointment. It was condemnation. This is what this man felt. And this is the man who lays on the mat in front of our king, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself, Jesus. This is the man who stares up into Jesus' eyes in this room packed full of people and waits to hear Jesus speak a word like he's heard Jesus do in the past. This man heard that Jesus would speak, that Jesus came announcing the, 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 the coming of this kingdom And that just like the prophets of old, that they had heard stories about, Jesus had been working miracles. And there was this like visible demonstration of God's power through him, that his kingdom was coming to earth. And this man on the mat wants in. Like nobody knows their brokenness like this man. He wants in. And so we know this man and his friends had faith that Jesus could heal. Why would you even bring him to Jesus unless you believed that Jesus could change his state? And because of the the context of this, I don't think that there was any entitlement here. I, I, I think there was expectation in this man. I think there was hope in this man that God might, that Jesus might be able to heal him And here's what's crazy, is that I don't think this man would have been that surprised to receive a rebuke from Jesus instead, instead of healing. Like, in his mind, even if Jesus was only a prophet, he was still this representative of God. He knew that there was power there. And I don't think he would have been surprised if Jesus looked down at him as he laid on this mat and just said, I'm really sorry, but your sins are just too many. But this belief was so, you have to get this, it was so deeply ingrained into this man. And and Anthem, seeing this man is what makes the words of Jesus so incredibly, incredibly powerful because you will not get the power behind the story unless you understand the heart of the man, the life of the man that's being placed there. And as the kingdom of God, as we've talked about, breaks into our world, 
there's three things that we see it do all at once. And so I want to take like a phrase at a time here in Jesus' response to this man. In verse 2, as Jesus begins to speak to him, this is what Jesus says. He says, take heart. He says, take heart. And the first thing that the, the kingdom of heaven does is it collides with our lives is that it eliminates our guilt. Like some of you just need to hear that today. Some of us are, are like this man. We have faith in Jesus, but we also have this deeply ingrained belief that we sort of forfeited our right to God's pleasure in us. Like we've forfeited God's delight in us because of all of the things that we've done. And so despite even our professions of faith and what we've said, some of us continue to process our lives through this grid that looks more like karma than it does the gospel of Jesus. And, and I think that we continue to tell ourselves and allow other people to tell us that the difficulty, that the pain, the trials, confusion, turmoil that, that we live, that, that we often live in is a sign that God's angry with us, that God's frustrated with us, that he's disappointed in us. I met a guy at the skate park last weekend, had an hour-long conversation with me who began to tell me that he had done so many bad things in his life that he had no right to ask God for help. You don't think this exists today? People are walking around feeling as though there's no hope for them because they've done way too many bad things. This guy basically believed he'd forfeited the opportunity for God to help him because of all that he'd done. And he was into some pretty gnarly stuff, I'm not gonna lie. He began to share it all with me. I'm like, yep, that sounds pretty crazy. If I was God, I'd be like, peace, but I'm not. And the strange thing is that I, I think some of us are comforted by refusing to let go of our guilt. Like we need to pay for it. Like when we live with this weight on us, it's how we like to try and pay God back a little bit for all that he's done for us. I'll just grin and bear it and take it because that's my way of paying for what Jesus did for me. And it's killing you. It's literally robbing you of your joy. It's robbing you of your witness to this world. And so you have to hear the words of Jesus, the words that apply to every single one of us that have faith in him. As you look to him in your mess, Jesus looked back at us and he says, take heart. Chill out. I've got this. Like, take heart. And th this phrase that he uses literally points to the strengthening of our emotions, the strengthening of our minds. To take heart means to be filled with courage instead of fear, to be filled with hope instead of despair. To take heart means that the weight that we're carrying is actually just an illusion because Jesus has already lifted it from you. It's gone. And I have to imagine that in this moment, that, that this man lying on the mat in front of Jesus must have just broke. Like, can you imagine? After carrying that weight for so long and being told by Jesus to take heart, like being told by Jesus that he could let go of the guilt. Now, now I mean, in his wildest dreams, what this man thought was that he was coming for healing. Bros, get me to that guy. <laughs> 
whatever you have to do, like going through the roof, just lower me down to him. In his wildest dreams, what he thought would happen was that his limbs would be restored and his, his muscles strengthened that he would walk out of that house in his wildest dreams. But what Jesus did was lift this massive burden from him. The guy's not even healed yet. You get that? Like, he's not even restored yet. Jesus is saying, take heart. Like, imagine the man's eyes welling up with tears and his heart being flooded with peace. And I believe this is what God wants for us. Like, some of us have walked in here this morning carrying all kinds of guilt and shame. But if you have faith in Jesus, then you're a citizen of God's kingdom. And the same power that's being applied to the life of this paralytic man is actually yours for the taking today, church. And so again, let the words sink in. He says, take heart. You don't have to carry that weight any longer. God doesn't look at you through the lens of your past or the things that you've done. He only sees you through the lens of his son, Jesus, which is the, the amazing grace of the gospel. He says, take heart. So let me ask you then, what weight are you carrying this morning? What burden is upon you? What weight are you hanging on to? that the gospel of Jesus has promised to lift. Well, wait. Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when the kingdom of God invades our world, the first thing it does is it eliminates guilt. That's what Jesus does with this man. And that's not all it does. The second thing that I want you to notice is he says, to this paralytic man lying in front of him in verse two, he says, take heart. And then he identifies him as son, my son. How cool is that? Like through faith in Jesus, the kingdom of God not only takes away our guilt, it actually reassures us of our real identity. It's not here, you're not a paralytic, you're my son. You've found yourself as a paralytic your whole life and thought you were jacked up and that was your identity. That's all you've been known by in the city and in the culture and in society, but that's not who you are, you're my son. He says, take heart, my son. And in order for us to understand the power of Jesus' words here, you have to understand that this paralytic man would have seen himself as a massive sinner. And so he was not, not because he, he was a paralytic, but because he didn't know Jesus. But scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, that there are no sinners that, that are greater than, than, than others outside of God's grace. And because of the salvation that's offered us in Jesus, we're actually on the same, pray, on the same page. Anybody ever heard the phrase like, the, gra or the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross? Like we all stand before Jesus the same, so imagine what it must have been like for this man who believed he was a sinner, society labeled him a sinner, to find himself looking up at Jesus, a man with no sin, and imagine what must have happened to him as Jesus looked down and gave the guy a name, like saw him for the first time. There's, there's so many instances in scripture where Jesus engages somebody who's sick and he looks into their eyes. Or you go into the book of Acts, and there's, there's a story where Peter, uh, P Peter engages this man that's, um, that, that's been laying on the, on the ground outside of the temple his whole life, and as Peter walks up to him, Peter says, hey, look at me. 
And there's something about Christians, followers of Jesus, that in light of what Jesus has done for us, we see people that nobody else sees. Because we believe their identity is more than what they've done. More than who the world has labeled them as. And imagine what must have happened in this man. It wasn't the name that everybody else called him, because what did they call him? They called him outcast. They called him cursed, broken. They called him less than. But Jesus looks down and he calls him family. He calls him son. And the reminder for us, Anthem, today is that he also does this for you. He sees you as son and daughter. And to put our faith in Jesus and enter into the kingdom of God means that we move from being enemies with God to being sons and daughters of God's. He restores that relationship. And so the the kingdom of God breaks into our world and as it does, God not only offers us forgiveness of our sins, he not only uh, eliminates the guilt, but the last thing is that God offers us himself. And it's the love that God has for this world that's expressed here through Jesus. Like our world needs this now more than ever because his love is not something he's withholding from us, but it's something he's ready and willing and excited to offer. And he doesn't just love you, but he takes us as his own. He adopts you into his family. And I find it so fascinating as I was thinking about this over the last couple days. If you look all throughout human history, You see that over and over again, when one kingdom in our world collides with another kingdom, that the people of the kingdom that are being taken over are either seen as obstacles that have to be removed or resources that have to be used. And they're the ones who are are gonna make the kingdom work. But as the kingdom of God intersects with our world, it's nothing like that. Like, first of all, God doesn't need us does he? He's not threatened by us. He doesn't need to remove us, and he doesn't need us to make his kingdom work. We access the kingdom through faith in Jesus, and all we are is beneficiaries. I mean, think about this. All we do is receive. That's it. Like, if you're a Christian, you're here this morning not because God needs something from you. Like, we need to remove the idea that you're here to give God something. He needs nothing from us. He needs nothing. He needs you. And as the kingdom of God intersects with the world, we become total and complete beneficiaries. We receive from him the thing that we didn't deserve, and that's grace. And so let me ask you another question in light of all of that. How would you define yourself this morning? Who are you? How would you answer that question? If you're a Christian, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, if you have faith in Jesus, then I can actually answer that question for you this morning. Who are you? You're his. That's who you are. We're his people. And that's really, really good news, isn't it? So through faith in Jesus, I'm going to take this off. I'm so hot right now. (laughs) The kingdom of God breaks into our world and it does these three things. Eliminates guilt, reassures us of our identity, and it frees us of our sin. And the reason that I wanted to slow down in this text and read it just a small passage, is because of this one last line. Because Jesus offered forgiveness to the paralytic, it made it really clear that this was the focus of this text. 
the greater work that Jesus was doing. In chapters eight and nine, Matthew lists one miracle after another. We've been going through these. It's like, boom, this person's healed, this person's healed, demons are cast out, he calms the, the wind and the, the waves. And we've been looking at one of these miracles each week for the last several weeks. And one of the dangers for us as believers um, who read the word is that we could actually start to think that the miracles are the point of the passage. And we teach it like that often. Oh, you want, you want what happened to this guy? Like, come forward and be healed. And not that Jesus doesn't want to give that, but that is not the purpose of the passage. These miracles were arrows. They were signposts. Jesus didn't come just to bring temporary moments of healing to your life. Jesus came to free you from sin. And I want you to hear that this morning. Freedom from sin is the ultimate work that Jesus could do in us and for us. I mean, every other benefit in the kingdom of heaven flows from this. If you're not forgiven, the rest of it's just a joke. And there's no benefit in the kingdom without this one. Like the brokenness in the world around us that we see right now, the brokenness of our flesh, these are not the real problems. They're just symptoms of a more systemic problem that we've been born into. And the removal of sin and us being imputed with the righteousness of Jesus is the real miracle that this man needed. And so that's how eternal life in God's kingdom is actually made possible to us. It's not come be healed so you can get into the kingdom. It's come be set free from your sin. The thing that the enemy meant to steal, kill, and destroy, and to take you out, come be freed from that because that's why Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that you would be freed from that, that you would be imputed with God's righteousness, and you actually get to choose to live a different life. The the center of the gospel, like the very foundation of it, is that Jesus came proclaiming what? Forgiveness of sins. And in a couple months, as we celebrate Christmas, um, we're going to be talking about the story of the birth of Jesus. And we'll actually be, celebra- we'll, we'll be celebrating it, but we're going to read through the birth story of Jesus, and we're going to hear about the story where Joseph is told by this angel not to fear uh, taking Mary as his wife, and, and that that which is conceived in her was actually born by the Holy Spirit, and that they're going to bear a son, and that you're going to call his name Jesus. And why is it that they would call his name Jesus? Because he will save people from their sins. That was it. And I love Matthew 9, 1 through 8, because in it, you have this paralyzed man lying on a mat before Jesus, and everybody's thinking what? They're all thinking, do a miracle, Jesus. You've done them all leading up to this. Do another miracle for us. And so his friends are bringing him to this house because they want to watch him walk, and Jesus has bigger plans. Jesus knows this man's problem isn't sickness. His problem is sin. And so more than being able to walk, the man needs to be purified. And I'm blown away that that this becomes the first person that we see in Matthew's gospel account whose sins are taken away. And Jesus hasn't even died on the cross yet. And there's one last thing that I want us to grasp that's going on here that we need to understand. There's this massive claim that Jesus is making here. He 
He's making the claim of his divinity, of his authority and his power. Jesus is saying one big thing, I'm God. Nobody else could take away the sins of the world. Nobody else could say to this man, your sins are forgiven. So in this moment, Jesus is claiming to be God. The Jews knew that that only God could forgive sins and that it could only happen by their attempts to go to the temple, to have a priest offer up sacrifices for them um, in order that they would be granted forgiveness for like one year's period so they could be atoned for a year. But Jesus comes on the scene with this claim that any work, sacrifice, or atonement that the priest could make up for a Jew was actually worthless. He was coming to do it once and for all. Verse 3. Ask the worship team to come up here. Verse three, read this with me. It says, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And I find this really incredible because what we're seeing is that the amazing grace in the words of Jesus to this paralytic are being overshadowed by one thing. The scribes can't grasp anything from what Jesus said. Why? Because they couldn't see Jesus as God. They couldn't make the connection. And whether or not Jesus is God determines whether Jesus was either pure evil or he was pure light. And so it's always really easy as you read through the Gospels to paint these religious leaders in a negative light. Like we we look at them as they're just these gnarly guys. Like Jesus was just using them to make points. And sometimes we're to learn from their mistakes. But at moments, you see their motivations. And their motivations were power. Their motivations were glory. And there are moments when I just can't help but to feel really bad for these dudes. This is one of those. What what these guys are trying to do in this culture is bring the people of Israel back to the word, like back to the Old Testament law. That was what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the scribes, that's what they were doing. They They were writing the law. They were teaching the law. They were trying to point people back to his word, back to the sacrificial system that was in the Old Testament. That's what they were trying to do. But as Jesus forgives this paralytic of his sins, they're actually standing there and they have to make a choice. Either they can get on board with Jesus and what he's doing, and in doing so, like actually undercut everything that they represent. Scriptures, the law, the sacrificial system, Or they can accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And now it gets even worse when we read the text and see that these guys actually probably didn't even say anything. (laughs) They weren't even ready to speak yet. They weren't ready to even land somewhere publicly. But it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. In verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Like these scribes had every outward appearance of righteousness. And yet Jesus called the thoughts of their heart evil. And as I thought about this, I just was thinking, this is why so many people have such a hard time with Christians. This is why so many people accuse the church constantly of arrogance and of exclusivity. It's because, you know, the the world and the church are both pursuing the same things. At the end of the day, we're both going after the same stuff. I mean, we've looked at three things that the kingdom of heaven does that presses in on our lives, and the world has actually recategorized those things, but they're in pursuit of the same things. The world and our culture at large are pursuing the elimination of guilt. Nobody wants to feel guilty. 
It's ugly. The world doesn't want to have to deal with guilt. The the world's trying to find their identity, right? Look at all the self-help junk that's out there today. People are trying to find their purpose and their identity. The culture around us is all about boosting self-esteem and our self-confidence so that we can find our purpose. And then the world, without even knowing it, is trying to figure out how to get rid of sin and make this world a better place. We clean it up if we do this, if we adhere to this. Let's make this happen, this happen. We're just going to make things better on our own. But the world just doesn't call it sin. It gets recategorized. And so oddly enough, like, we're after the same things. From a Christian worldview, we're after the same things. And it makes a ton of sense because we've all been hardwired for the kingdom of heaven. From the day you were born, there were desires and things put in you by God because he created your life. But Anthem, only Jesus offers more than a Band-Aid. Only Jesus. Only Jesus moves deeper than the symptoms, and Jesus gets to the root of the disease. It's why all the church can do is proclaim Jesus as God. He is God. It's why we love the people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our cities. It's why we proclaim with every breath and every action, with every job, with every school assignment, as best we can, that we believe Jesus is God. It's why we exist here, Anthem. We exist to make Jesus known, don't we? And we talk about that a lot, don't we? And it's interesting because making Jesus known where we live is kind of an interesting task when you think about it. Because our world already has a ton of opinions about who Jesus is. It's not like people don't know who Jesus was or people haven't heard of Jesus. I mean, when was the last time you engaged somebody in Coeur d'Alene who was like, what, Jesus? I've never heard that name before. But our American culture thinks all kinds of things about Jesus. Some think he's a good man. Some think he's a crazy person. Some think he was a great leader. Some people think he was a great teacher and we have a lot to learn from him. Some people think that Jesus was an anarchist. Some people think Jesus was a prophet. Some people think that Jesus was just an enlightened one and on and on and on. People have all these titles and these associations with Jesus. But what this text is showing us is that every one of these labels that we assigned to Jesus is actually a wall that ends up keeping us and many of the people we love outside of God's kingdom. And this is what we're seeing here, is that our world has no problem with Jesus. They have a problem with Jesus as God. That's their issue. And it was no different at Jesus' time. Like when Jesus left, What was it that would get Christians killed? Not the fact that they believed Jesus walked the earth and did miracles. What got Christians killed was the fact that they believed Jesus was the Son of God and in fact God himself. So here's the thing, I wanna push just a little bit deeper as we wrap this up. I think many of us in this room have no problem calling Jesus God. I think that if I was to ask most of you, you'd say, yeah, I believe that. And yet not all of us are walking in and enjoying and experiencing the benefit of his kingdom that we see in scripture. 
We call Jesus God, but yet we're still riddled with guilt. We call Jesus God, but yet we're still trying to define ourselves apart from him. We call Jesus God, but we're still trying to pay some kind of penance for our sin and do something to make up for it. And somehow, even though you know the right words are coming out of your mouth, we still have the sort of denial of him as God within us. And I know that this exists in me sometimes. Or I can have those days where I doubt and I think that I need to do something and make up for something and play God myself. And the only way for us as Christians to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of heaven is to do what the scribes and the Pharisees wouldn't, and that's let God be God. Let him be God. And that will mean the same thing for us as it did for them. It means we're going to lay down our own kingdoms, church. It means that the things that we've represented and have built with our lives, with our hands, we're going to lay down. It means that Jesus doesn't exist to advance your plans, your agenda, your ambitions, your goals, but instead, instead we exist to advance his. And when the kingdom of heaven collides with our world, every other kingdom is laid low. It crumbles. And so for Christians who are beneficiaries of this, this should bring a ton of joy to you that what we want to do, it's what we want to give. And he says this, verse four till the end, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So we finally get to this miracle itself. And my hope, my hope in it is that now we can just really clearly see this miracle was not the point. It was the capper on the deal. It was sort of like the kiss of God, like... (laughs) The bigger work is that I forgave his sins, but eh, because everybody's watching, like, why don't you get off that mat and walk home? And the bigger work is what that work, the miracle, actually draws other people into. Because now people are like, Jesus didn't just heal him, he forgave him, and I want the gift that Jesus gave to that man. Would you guys stand with me? So with all of this said, you have this massive crowd of people gathered inside of this house with really only one option. If you're standing there watching this take place, what are you thinking? And the same is true for you and I today. All of our responses this morning, whether you walk out of here and just forget everything that I talked about, it's fine. Whether you decide to do nothing with what it is we talked about, whether this upsets you or not, all of our responses fit into one one of two categories. Either you affirm or deny the divinity of Jesus. And that's the choice that you get to make. And I'll leave you with that. Like, is he God or isn't he God? For some of you right now, like you've been struggling in your life, not sure what you were devoting your life to. And maybe this morning, like God's encouraging you, like I actually am 
God. Jesus was God. There's actually bigger work I want to do. You've been praying and seeking him. Oh, would you provide for me financially? Would you heal this relationship? Would you do this? Would you do that? And at the end of the day, the bigger work that God wants to do in you is the forgiveness of your sins. He wants to relinquish the guilt. He wants to give you a new name. He wants to impart a piece of himself in you. And that's way better than having your leg or your arm healed. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. And after I get done praying, um, I'm inviting you guys to come forward and take communion. What an awesome thing we get to do where we come forward this morning to drink of the juice, the blood of Jesus, to eat of his body. And in doing so, we remember this morning who he is, that he wasn't just some man that walked the earth. He was a man that bled and died brutally on a cross, not just to make a statement, but so that his righteousness could be imputed into you, that your sins would be forgiven, that you would walk in the freedom that God intended you to walk in from day one, that sin has robbed from you. This morning, as you partake in communion, I encourage you, do not look at this as a religious act and just a function that you do because that's what you do at church. But I encourage you to grab some juice and grab a piece of bread, to go back to your chairs, to sit there and remember who Jesus is the work that he's done for you. And as you partake in it, remember the fact that he didn't leave you nor forsake you, but he actually imparted himself in you. And you get to walk in the newness of life as a result of what Jesus has done for you on that cross. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you, um, God, for your word. What an awesome thing it is to learn from your scriptures. What an awesome thing it is, Lord, to admit this morning that we are nothing without you, that we desperately need you, Jesus, to know that you've lifted our hands when we need it, that you've set our feet upon a rock, Lord, that without you we are nothing, Lord. And so we come before you this morning, a people that I hope are grateful, a people that I hope are hope-filled, a people that I hope are joyful, um, a, a people that are just thankful for the amazing work that you have done in our lives. And as we leave here today, God, we know that the work doesn't just stop at these walls, but as we leave this place, much like this paralytic that was healed and walked away in freedom, and others begin to ask questions, what happened in you? How were you changed? And he began to point them back to God himself and Jesus. May we be a people as we leave these four walls today that begin to speak of the amazingness and the faithfulness, the goodness of the Most High God, who without him we would be nothing. That the only reason we have life today and air in our lungs and eyes to see and ears to hear and these hands and these feet are a result of the grace of God being bestowed upon us and him granting our lungs air in them one more day so that we can live this life. And I pray we would not take that for granted. We love you, Jesus, and we give you the honor and the praise. Do your name today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing the song, feel free to come forward and grab the elements, and then you can go back to your chairs and partake of them in your own time.